Let's turn in our Bibles together to John 13. And we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 11. Verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So when he came to Simon Peter, he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we have together as your people. We gather in your presence, Lord, and I just pray that you would help us be conscious of that, that you see us and you inhabit our praises and you hear our prayers and you speak to us through your word. And so, Lord, as we now give our ear to your word, to your son, to his action and to his words, and to the words that are given to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we ask, Father, that you would enable us to hear and to understand and to be changed by what we read and by what we think about this morning. And Father, I ask that you would help me to preach by your Holy Spirit and give me the right words, Lord, and work through my, my limitations, Lord, and I just pray that we would hear your voice and your truth and that you would be honored and glorified by how we listen. And Lord, that you would be glorified as we hear your word and as we see your son and as we see your nature in Jesus, that we would be amazed in a fresh way and we would leave here this morning with full hearts of wonder and of praise. Please do this in each one of our hearts, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, I gave an introduction to the second half of the Gospel of John, and then we looked at the first five verses of chapter 13, the entryway into this great cathedral of theology, that is the second half of the Gospel of John. 
And what we saw there in the first five verses, and we read them again, but we won't be looking at them this morning, but what we saw there last week in the first five verses was this. Jesus, knowing exactly who he is, he knows, he knows who he is perfectly, knowing exactly what men are, and knowing exactly what is about to happen to him, does this amazingly surprising thing. He puts on the garments of a servant, and he stoops down and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Knowing who he is, this is what John is emphasizing. He knows who he is. He's not forgetting. He's not having a little bit of insomnia. He knows who he is. In amnesia. What is it? Amnesia. Okay, right. Amnesia. That's right. I had a little bit of amnesia just there. And he knows who these people are, right? He knows one of them is Judas, who's betraying him and hating him, is filled with the devil. And he knows that all men are evil. And he knows that they're about to crucify him. He's got this horrendous task to fulfill, bearing the wrath of God. And yet he's thinking of others. He's thinking of us. He stoops down and washes the disciples' feet. The evangelical commentator F.F. Bruce puts it this way. Jesus, conscious of the universal sovereignty conferred on him by his Father, fully aware of his heavenly origin and destiny, does something which will strike home to the disciples' hearts an indelible impression of that sovereignty, origin, and destiny. I like how he puts it there. He says, Jesus knows who he is and what he's going to do, and what he does reveals to the disciples who he is and what he's going to do in an indelible way, in a way that they'll never forget. So he knew who he was and what he came to do, but the disciples didn't really understand who he was and what he came to do. Yes, they knew he was the Messiah, and they probably knew he was more than a man, but they didn't understand yet the nature of God. Who is God? and What is God all about? They didn't understand the nature of his mission, but what Jesus did there that at supper and following that supper changed forever the way that the disciples thought about the mission of the Messiah and the way that the, the disciples thought about God. True? I mean, he's turning their world upside down. Here. Jesus had been telling them his hour had come, and he said that it was the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the people, when they heard that, said, oh, this is wonderful. Now has come the hour for the Messiah to be glorified and, you know, take over and reign. But here we see him in garments of a servant washing feet. And I think the disciples might have thought, Jesus, what are you doing washing feet? You said it's the hour of your glory, not the hour of your humility. We're expecting exaltation and glory. To which I think Jesus, in so many words, replies to them, my humility is my glory. Not only because by going low to serve, the Father exalts him. Not only because by humbling himself unto death, as Philippians 2 says, because he does that, God highly exalts him. But also because in the exercise of mercy and grace and service to mankind, 
we see the nature of God at its deepest and in its fullness. And he is glorious when we see him in the role of a servant. So do you see that? It's not just because you served, I'll exalt you, but his service itself makes us glorify him and worship him and be amazed at him. Isn't that that a big part of the reason why you as a Christian love and worship God and think he's so amazing? Because he's loved you in that way, right? And because he's served you. And as amazing as the foot washing is, and it really is amazing that the Lord would, would wash the feet of sinful human beings, it's but a sign and a symbol of his ultimate humility and his ultimate service, which is his death that he's going to accomplish. And he's going to wash away, not just the dirt on our feet, but the sins of our life by his blood. And this is a symbol of that. And friends, there's no other right response to what Jesus has done than to be amazed and to accept what he's done with grateful heart and to say hallelujah. There's no other right response than that. And I hope you realize that when you when you hear the gospel of what God has done for you, that's the response. Wow, thank you. Praise God, you're awesome. And that's what this is about. So this morning we're going to continue in the story and continue in the text. We'll start in verse 6. And we're going to see what happens next in the story when Jesus, as he's washing the disciples' feet, comes to a disciple who will not have Jesus wash his feet. And you know which disciple that is, right? Peter, of course. Peter. And you know what we all love about Peter? We love Peter because Peter is exactly like us, except for this one difference. At least, maybe some of you are exactly like Peter in every way, but I think Peter is exactly like all of us, most of us, except for one difference. He has the guts to do and say what we all want to do and say. We just don't have the guts to do it, right? (laughs) We're all thinking what Peter's thinking. And if we were in those situations, we'd be thinking the same thing and wanting to do and say the same thing, but we don't have the guts to do it. He had the guts to do it, and what we love about him is he gets in trouble for it, and we just get to learn the lesson from a distance, right? Oh, I won't do that. (laughs) Oh, I won't think that, right? We love Peter for that. So I've just divided the sermon, this sermon into three sections. Number one, we're going to look at Peter's protest against Jesus washing his feet. Peter's protest against Jesus washing his feet. Number two, Jesus' response to Peter's protest. And then we'll close with the third section. We'll look at verse 10. And the last section will be the meaning of Jesus' statement in verse 10. It's a, a statement that is a tricky one to interpret. So number one, Peter's protest against Jesus washing his feet. Now as F.F. Bruce said, and I quoted him above, the action of Jesus washing the disciples' feet left an indelible impression on the disciples and on Peter. That means what Jesus did was so profound and impactful that it left a permanent etching on their mind. And you can see that in Peter. Because years later, when he writes 1 Peter, his letter, 
In chapter 5, verse 5, Peter says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. And I think that there's an echo there of that upper room act of Jesus. This was so powerful to Peter. He'll never be able to forget that the Lord Jesus got up from the table. He didn't need to. He shouldn't have by all human wisdom. And he, it says, laid aside his outer garments, his supper garments, and he put on the towel, meaning he put on the servant's attire. The servants would wear these towels, and they would wear kind of like an apron. He put on the apron. And Peter's, that, Peter would never forget that. It left an impression upon him. He could probably still just close his eyes and remember that scene. And then he tells us all, all of you clothe yourselves with the servant's attire. All of you clothe, clothe yourselves with humility. And you can see how impactful it was to him. In other words, when you get dressed in the morning, we all get dressed in the morning, right? Don't forget to put on the servant's attire when you get dressed in the morning. It's not a literal apron, but it's an apron nonetheless. And I think we throw on our pants and our shirt and our socks and we run out the door and we forget, no, no, today I clothe myself with the servant's attire and humility because I'm here to serve others and to serve the Lord Jesus. And so we, we learn from him an example. That's what Peter remembered and, and said in his letter. So don't forget to put on your apron every, every day. And have that attitude in you. What a difference that will make. Amen? For the rest of your day. However, this was not initially a positive experience for Peter. It was a confusing experience for him initially. He didn't understand. It was embarrassing. You're my Lord. What are you doing? Right? It was, I think, disturbing for him troubling because Jesus was acting in a way that did not fit his world right so Peter had a way of a way of thinking about the world and Jesus suddenly the one he respects the most and looks up to and is following gets up and starts doing something that does not fit his world and that's probably not only confusing and embarrassing but hard to deal with disturbing ah this is bothering me doesn't feel good right now even frightening what's happening so I think there's a lot of emotion in Peter initially here. As he says in verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? I think there's a lot there of emotion, confusion, embarrassment, fear. Do you wash my feet? Try to imagine that you're British. <laughs> That's right. Amen. Try to imagine that you're British or Canadian, because I think this is easier to understand if you're British and Canadian or not, not American. How would you feel if, as a British person, the queen came and started to wash your feet? Or wash your car? Or wash your dishes? <laughs> How would you feel, as a British person, if the queen started doing that? I, I'm certain you'd say, no, 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 your majesty, no, no, you really should not be doing that. You know, No, I'll take care of that, please. That's just so... I should be washing your dishes. This is way beneath you. You would not feel like it'd be right. right? Everything would be out of sorts. That's how Peter was feeling. Now imagine if God appeared and began to wash your car or your dishes, those nasty dishes you don't want to do. How would you feel? Would you feel like, oh my 
goodness, everything's out of sorts. But that's what God did. It's not just a hypothetical thing. That's the amazing thing. That's what God did. And you know, here's an amazing thought. If you were there in that upper room, if it happened to be you as one of the twelve, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, if you were there on that night, he would have physically washed your feet if you were there. Think about that. It's not like, oh, well, no, actually, if you were there, I would have skipped you, right? That, that shows that God does this for you. He serves you. But even though we weren't there, because this is a symbol of a greater service, that's what he has done for you. And it's amazing. Everybody was stunned like Peter, but only Peter spoke up, and he said how everyone was feeling. In the Greek, in verse 6, there's a strong emphasis on the words you and my, on the pronouns. Lord, do you wash my feet? Think about that, because there's much implied in those two pronouns, isn't there? As our understanding of those pronouns grows, then our amazement and our shock at what Jesus has done also grows. The more we see who the you is that is washing the feet of the my, the more amazed we'll be. And the more we see who the my is, right, the more you understand who you are, the better you know yourself. And as you get more and more mature as a Christian, you continue to grow in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you continue to grow in your knowledge of yourself. And as you continue to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, you continue to be amazed at who he is. As you continue to grow in the knowledge of yourself, what happens? You continue to be disgusted and shocked by who you are, right? And, oh, I'm worse than I thought. And so the shock of what Jesus is doing here should actually get greater and greater as we get older as Christians. There's nothing actually wrong in Peter's first statement. Do you think there's anything wrong in his first statement? Lord, do you wash my feet? You'll notice that Jesus in verse 7 doesn't rebuke him. There's no rebuke here. There's no, no cause for Jesus to, be, to give him some strong correction because Peter has just expressed how confused he is and how shocked he is. It's not false humility on Peter's part here. It's not even false theology exactly. He's realizing, Jesus, you are, you are above me. You are superior to me. Are you washing my feet? That's amazing. That's shocking. He's just taken aback. Now look with me at verse 7. Jesus says in response, What I do to you, you do not realize now. You do not understand, but you will understand hereafter. This is not a rebuke. But brothers and sisters, this is a blessed statement from the mouth of Jesus. This is a blessed statement from the mouth of Jesus that has an application, I think, beyond just this exact moment. Because what we see in, in Jesus' words in verse 7 is that God will do things that we don't understand. Right? 
I mean, that's, what, that's what's happening. Jesus is doing something that's confusing, a little embarrassing, even disturbing and frightening because it's not fitting Peter's world. So we're seeing that God will do things that we don't understand, and there's times in life when we can't understand, even we can't understand what God is doing. Because Jesus isn't saying, you're so dumb, don't you know? He says, you can't know right now what I'm doing. You'll know later. And that happens. And I don't think it's only here in the upper room that that happens, but I think you can see that all throughout the Bible, that the Lord does things people don't understand at the time, and then they understand later as well. God turns our world upside down and inside out. Have you ever been confused by what God does or doesn't do? Have you ever been disturbed? Have you ever been frightened by what God does or doesn't do? And what do we do when that happens? What, what, is, our re, what is our response? I think there's three, at least three ways we could respond when God does things we don't understand. Number one, we can just pretend it away and think, I don't, I'm not hearing anything, la, 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 you know, I'm not seeing anything. You can just ignore it, push it aside. Not deal with it. Not acknowledge it. Some people take that road. Or, when God does something that turns your world upside down and confuses you or disturbs you because you don't understand, a lot of people say, forget God, right? I'm done. If he doesn't do what, I, what makes sense to me, I'm out. Or, thirdly, we trust God and his superior vantage point and his superior wisdom when we don't understand. So let me ask you three questions. Is God in control of your life and of all things? Is God in control? Yes? Is God wiser than you are? Does he know more than you are, see more than you see, know about everything better than you do? Yes. Does God do things in your life that you don't understand? Or does he not do things in your life that you don't understand? Now you acknowledge he's in control and you acknowledge he's wiser than you. So what can you do then? What is right but to trust him and his superior understanding rather than just pretend it away or say forget you, God. I love what the theologian John Calvin says about this. He says this and I quote, We should not take it ill to be ignorant of those things which God wishes to be hidden from us for a time. That's not, don't take that as a bad thing. For this kind of ignorance is more learned than any other kind of knowledge when we permit God to be wise above us. I love that statement. He basically says there's a kind of ignorance that's smarter and more knowledgeable than knowledge. And it's the ignorance when you recognize, I don't understand, but I know who does, and I trust in him. And that is a wiser ignorance. That ignorance is wiser than the person who will refuse to be ignorant, right? I refuse to be ignorant. Well, who is more knowledgeable, the one who accepts the ignorance or the one who refuses the ignorance, right? 
This statement of Jesus in verse 7 reminds me of a song you're probably familiar with. It's a hymn. And the chorus says this, Farther along we'll know more about it. Have you heard this one? You should definitely Google it or YouTube it. Farther along by W.B. Stevens. Farther along we'll know more about it. Farther along we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brother. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. This is what Peter needs to do in this situation because the Lord is doing something that he does not understand. Now, how does he respond? Does he respond in trust? Does he respond in embracing that ignorance and saying, you know, Lord, I don't understand, but you do. And so I'm going to trust you that you that you are wise and good. That's not what Peter does. He does what we should not do. And Peter's second statement here is no longer an innocent statement. It's not just that he's taken back and surprised. Peter now goes head to head with Jesus. Peter now protests what Jesus is doing because he doesn't understand it. And in so many words, Peter is saying, no, Jesus, you are wrong in what you're doing. I do understand, and I understand that what you're doing is not right, and I will not let you wash my feet. That's what he's saying in so many words. You will never wash my feet. It's inappropriate, and it would be wrong for me to submit to it. It's interesting that the, um, the Greek here I was reading in the commentaries, it couldn't be stronger. There's really no way that John could have written out Peter's words in a more emphatic or absolute manner. Here's what the Greek literally says. Not, not will you ever wash my feet forever into the ages. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So it's not just, you're not washing my feet now, you're not washing my feet ever and ever and ever and ever hallelujah you're never going to wash my feet isn't that's a strong statement it's not right now it's not going to be right tomorrow it's not going to be right in eternity and peter is undoubtedly sincere he's undoubtedly religiously motivated by a sense of the propriety of God being God and man being man. But he's nonetheless misguided and he's proud because he's not submitting to the superior wisdom and knowledge of God. And furthermore, just like when he rebuked Jesus for saying he was going to go to the cross, Peter here is inspired by a satanic wisdom, isn't he? Because when Jesus said the Son of Man is going to be crucified, he says, never, never, never will that happen to you. And he's sincere, right? And he means well. But Jesus says, you don't understand the things of God. You don't savor the things of God. Get behind me, Satan. You're missing the whole point. You're speaking from a place of ignorance, not only of what my mission is, but of the nature of God himself. You don't understand. This is outside of your box, and your box needs to break now, right? And it's satanic for you to cling to your little box and not let it break. But Peter's shocked because 
This is, this is a beautiful word, preposterous. Preposterous. It means it's putting the first last and the last first. It's not right. It's not the way it should be. That's the way Peter's thinking, right? This is preposterous. You shouldn't be washing my feet. It's all wrong. It's all backwards. It's all mis misorganized. Preposterous. Another Bruce, different Bruce than the one I quoted, A.B. Bruce, Alexander Bruce, he comments on Peter's behavior here. His whole behavior on this occasion presents an odd mixture of moral opposites, self-abasement and self-will, <coughs> humility and pride, respect and disrespect for Jesus, to whom he speaks now as one whose shoe latchet he is not worthy to unloose, and also as one to whom he might dictate orders. Peter's a complex guy, isn't he? Have you ever been like Peter? Moving on to my second point, Jesus' response to Peter's re protest. Jesus' response to Peter's protest. Now, as Peter has changed his tone and stepped out of line, Jesus also changes his tone. And in verse 8, Jesus responds to Peter's protest with this. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. That must have hurt, don't you think? I think Jesus knew that one would hurt. In other words, Peter, if you go down that road, or perhaps better, Peter, if you refuse to accept my coming down this road, then you have no part with me. And let's not miss what an extraordinary thing Jesus is saying. He's saying, Peter, if you don't let me do this seemingly insane thing, if you don't let me do this preposterous thing, then you have no part with me. It's a very interesting statement Jesus is making. If you don't let it be preposterous, you can't be with me. Because what I'm doing looks to the world as preposterous. You've got to accept that. And this is what the gospel and Christianity is all about. I know there's a lot of people in this world who claim to be Christian. The, the term Christianity is a big banner to a lot of people. And it, in, it includes Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and Mormonism and every other... 20,000 denomination in the world, right? Well, actually, Christianity in the Bible is a smaller banner. And those who call themselves to be Christians don't actually fit under that banner because they miss this. They don't let their box break. They don't accept the preposterous thing that Jesus is doing. God, the utterly superior, serves us, the utterly sinful and how he serves us. What an amazing service he renders to us as well. It's not some little service. See, the message of Christianity is not the message that we must serve God. That is not the message of Christianity, ultimately, that we must serve God. That is the message of the law. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the law is that you need to serve God and love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might, all of your mind, and you need to love your neighbor as yourself and serve them too. That is the law. And guess what? 
The law is true, and the law is good, and the law feels right, doesn't it? Everything about that message is not preposterous, and it fits great. And it is true. You and me, we should serve God and our neighbor. That is absolutely true, good, and right, and it should feel right. And it will always feel right, because it's always good and true. Amen? But Christianity comes along and says, yep, except you haven't done that, right? You have totally failed to do what is true, good, and right. So we're not arguing with you that you should, you should serve God, your superior, and your neighbor, but what we're telling you is, you is that you don't do that. Not one of us, every single one of us here, has failed every single day to obey the law and to serve God and their neighbor. And the gospel furthermore goes on to say something amazing. Even though you failed and you don't do it, and you're not righteous, and you deserve to be thrown across the lake of fire, God loves you. And here's the amazing news we bring to you, the surprising news and the preposterous news. God has come into the world and has served sinners in the most extraordinary way, not by just coming and kind of cheering us on a little bit more, but by coming and dying in our place, bearing the wrath that we deserve, the condemnation that we deserve, and providing for us the righteousness that we need and that we can't have apart from his gift. So, in other words, not only has the superior God served sinners, but he served them in the most extraordinary way. Everything that was required by the law is provided for you in the service of God through Jesus. And guess what? It's totally free. You just receive it. Just like Peter, Jesus, you just accept it. Okay. And that's paradigm shattering, isn't it? And if you don't accept it, you cannot be a Christian. The famous German theologian Rudolf Bultmann says this, Peter's words express the basic way men think, the refusal to see God in the form of a slave. There's two reasons why people refuse to see God in the form of a slave. Number one, they don't think they need God to serve them. Why should I see God serving me if I don't need that service? I'm good. I can serve him. He doesn't need to serve me. The law tells me to serve him and I can do that. that that's fine. That works for me, right? That's good. So they don't see that they need it. Or if they see that they need it, this is the second way people reject this God as the form of the slave. Suppose they, say, they realize, man, I failed to serve God and it would be really great if he served me, but I'm too unworthy for God to serve me or he's too high and majestic to serve someone like me. So the one error is I'm too good and the other is I'm too bad to see God in the form of of a slave. And Boltman goes on to say, to accept Jesus' service means to believe. 
It means readiness to accept the disintegration of all the standards which the world uses to judge what is great and divine. Because the gospel tells us you need to be served by God, right? The gospel tells us you aren't good. You can't serve him. He must serve you. And the gospel also tells us he will serve you. Not because you deserve it, but because that's what kind of God God is. He's so amazing and he's so good and he's so merciful, even though he's so high. Be amazed and wonder at who God is. That's the message of the gospel. So the question is, will you allow your box to be disintegrated and to believe and accept the truth about who you are and who God is? Or will you continue to resist the idea of God as a servant? Which is, sounds preposterous, it's true. Proverbs 3 verse 5 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. You may not understand how evil you are, but God tells you how evil you are. It's time for you to trust him. And you may not understand how it could be, as we sang, and can it be that I should gain? You may not understand how it could be that God would do that for you, but the gospel says he has. And so it's time for you to not lean on your own understanding. It's time for you to trust in what God has done and what God has revealed. In other words, just let God serve you. Just let Jesus wash your feet, Peter. Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. Just let God serve you and he will. You may not feel righteous, right, as a Christian. How many of you get up in the morning and you just feel righteous, right? I just feel blameless before God today, right? I just feel squeaky clean. No. <laughs> what are you going to do? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, right? I know I feel dirty because by all human measurement, I'm guilty. It's all true. According to the law, I'm guilty. But the gospel says God has served me. Jesus has died for my sins. And by faith in him, I am righteous and forgiven and blameless before God. Believe. Accept that service and say, thank you, Lord. I'm amazed. If we don't do that, we can have no part with Jesus. This is inheritance language. Inheritance language. And here's the amazing thing. The Lord of Lords, the Lord of Lords, Lords both visible and invisible, the Lord of Lords serves the chief of sinners so that the chief of sinners can share in the eternal inheritance with the Lord of Lords. Isn't that what Jesus said? He doesn't just, okay, you're forgiven and righteous now, be gone. He literally makes you his righteous child so that you can join him seating in the throne of the Lord, right? For all of eternity as a joint heir with Christ. So he's saying, look, Peter, if you don't let me serve you, and I know it sounds preposterous, you'll have no part with me in the eternal inheritance. So friends, God has not only served you, the superior serving the sinful, and he's not only made you righteous and forgiven you, he's given you all things in Christ. And that's an amazing thought, isn't it? There's a powerful lesson here as well. As much as Jesus loved Peter, and as close a companion as Peter was with Jesus, 
If Peter didn't let his paradigm be broken and get served by Jesus, he would not share with Jesus and the eternal inheritance. In other words, Jesus would not say to the Father, you know, Father, I know Peter refused to let me serve him and, and wash him, but it's Peter, right? He was my closest companion on earth. He was my buddy. He was my apostle. He, he was with me. Can we make an exception for him? No. There is not any other way for a person to be saved than by faith in Jesus and believing in his service and trusting in his service, that preposterous service. There's no other way. It doesn't matter how much a close associate you are with Jesus. And on the flip side, you may never have seen Jesus in your life, never walked with him in the beach, never ate breakfast with him, never was one of his apostles, never was in the upper room. And if you believe in him and are served by him, then you share with him in the eternal inheritance. Because what matters is that you know God and have received from him his salvation. Isn't that awesome? That's encouraging to me, you know, because I wasn't there 2,000 years ago. I've never seen Jesus in my life, but by receiving his service, I'm, I'm in with him. And Peter would be out if he didn't. It's amazing. Now look at verse 9. This shows how much Peter loved Jesus, doesn't it? And how much he wanted to be with him. Peter is just like David. who's like, Lord, without you, life is nothing. I can't be apart from you. And the moment Peter sees what's at stake, the moment Peter realizes the seriousness of his, of his refusal to be washed by Jesus, he immediately casts away his thick head protest, doesn't he? He immediately is done protesting, even though Peter still didn't understand. Do you see that? It's not like Peter suddenly got it. It's not like he suddenly says, oh, I know what you're doing. He just said, okay, if I can't be with you unless this happens, then let's do it. Let's do it all, right? Even though he doesn't understand. And that's a beautiful thing because now he goes from protesting to that embracing of ignorance and trusting of God and his wisdom. And here's an important point. There are many people who followed Jesus in the first century who didn't understand what Jesus was doing and saying, and they left, right? John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. They did not understand. And what did they do? See you, Jesus. I don't get it, I'm gone. But we see with Peter and the apostles, even when they didn't understand, they didn't say, see you, Jesus. They said, okay, we're submitting to your superior wisdom now because we know you're God and we want to be with you. And you have the words of eternal life. And so we see that the difference between leaving or staying with God is not only your understanding. The difference between leaving and staying is the fear of God, the love of God, and trust in God in his superior wisdom. That's the difference between leaving and staying. And if you have that, then as we see with Peter, you're going to be okay because you're going to stay with the Lord. I'd like to close this morning with verse 10, the meaning of Jesus' statement in verse 10. Let's read verse 10 again. Jesus said to him, 
Because Peter just said, Lord, wash not only my feet then, but also my hands and my head. In verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Since the earliest days of the church, this verse has incited a highly developed interpretation. So if you read early commentators and sermons on John, you're going to see there's a very developed interpretation of this verse, and, and it's been since the early days. So even today, you crack open a commentary in the Gospel of John, and you come to this verse, and you'll get this very big interpretation of this text. So from this small saying of Jesus, we get this very big teaching on the, on this, the Christian's state of cleanliness. And here's the idea, and it's been pretty consistent throughout the years. Here's what readers of the Bible have interpreted Jesus to mean here. When you're first converted, when you first believe and become a Christian, you're forgiven of all your sins and you're cleansed of all your sins. You're righteous, you're forgiven, you're clean. But then you start living life as a Christian, right? And even though you're God's child and you're clean and you're forgiven of your sins, you're living in life and your feet get dirty, right? You're living in the world and you sin again and you dirty your feet. But because you're a Christian, you're not all ruined. Because you're a Christian, every time you sin as a Christian, it doesn't mean you have to go right back to square one, right? It's like, oh, you sinned as a Christian? Well, then you're not, you're not a Christian anymore or you're totally dirty now and you need to get totally re-forgiven of all your sins and all... You need to get your righteousness back because you lost that. No, no, you're still righteous. You're still forgiven even when you sin. But you do have a part of you that's dirty and you can never be all clean. And there's these little defilements you need to deal with day by day through confession and cleansing again and again and again. But don't worry, it's not the whole thing. It's just a little part of it. Now, have, have you interpreted this verse that way? Has that been away maybe you've taken it you know you're all clean but your feet are dirty and that just happens by being a christian in life and you got to keep maintaining the cleanliness of your feet but it's not the whole thing and the struggle in that is this idea that you need to be cleansed again and again in an ongoing way as a christian but they don't want to say you have to start right back from the very beginning so somehow there's this continual confession, continual cleansing, but it's not the same as your cleansing at conversion. You don't lose your salvation. And why is that useful to the Christian mind? Um, I think it's useful because as Christians we do sin, right? And when we sin we do feel dirty. And this theology comes along and says, yeah, we're going to have to deal with that. But let me give you the comfort that you're still clean, you know, pretty much. And you don't have to start from scratch. So I think that's the motivation of this interpretation is to kind of give us that comfort as we sin in life. I personally think that this is taking Jesus' statement beyond what he intended. And as the idiom goes, trying to get blood out of a stone. 
think it's trying to squeeze too much out of this verse. And I, you don't have to agree with me, but let me just share with you what I think Jesus is saying here. Certainly Jesus is speaking of spiritual cleansing. If you look at the end of verse 10, he says, you are clean, but not all of you. And in verse 11, he says, he knew who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, you are not all clean. So certainly here in this saying, Jesus is, is referring to something more than just physical feet being clean. He's thinking of Judas. And he's thinking of the other disciples that are clean, spiritually. And it's agreed upon by all commentators and, and Bible readers that the whole foot washing event is a symbol of the cross. So Jesus is washing their feet, and that is pointing to his ultimate service of the cross. And so I can see why interpreters, when they hit, when they hit verse 10, would go in that direction. They think, look, he is speaking spiritual, about spiritual cleansing, and the whole foot washing thing is talking about the cross. So let's interpret verse 10 in that way. Let's take it in that spiritual direction and think about how a person can be all clean but not their feet in a spiritual way. One other um, thing to say about that interpretation, it is certainly true that as Christians, we are once and for all forgiven and cleansed and righteous by the blood of Christ, and yet there is some aspect, right, of an ongoing life of finding ourselves to be dirty again in our minds, in our feelings, and having to deal with that, right? I mean, even though you've, you became a Christian how many years ago, and we know you were cleansed, isn't it true that day by day you have to deal with the fact that you feel dirty again, right? You, you can't just ignore that. So that's true. But I think what's going on there in the Christian experience is not most of you is clean, but a part of you is dirty. But rather, what's going on there is you are objectively clean by the blood of Christ. What you need to deal with on an ongoing basis is the subjective aspect of reckoning or realizing or, or, or grasping the fact that you're clean. Right? So you don't, you don't have to actually get clean again and again and again and again as a Christian. You're forgiven once for all. But on an ongoing basis, you do have to deal with the fact that you forget that or you don't feel that you're actually clean and you have to remember that and enjoy that again and again and again, right? So I don't see that in terms of, you know, most of you is clean, but a part of you isn't, but all of you is clean, but you have to continually reckon that and realize that. So there is that ongoing aspect. I think it's valid to ask, though, in verse 10, is it really what Jesus meant to say? This other interpretation. Is this whole verse metaphorical? Is the whole verse talking about people in a spiritual way? And I think, brothers and sisters, that to go in that direction actually muddles the symbol of the foot washing. It confuses the whole thing. Jesus is not washing people's, the disciples' feet to symbolize limited cleansing. Amen? He's not washing their feet to symbolize, I need to clean a little bit of you because a little bit of you is still dirty. But he's washing their feet, as most 
all commentators recognize to symbolize that he, the superior, is serving the inferiors and the subordinates. That's the point of the foot washing. It's not what part of the body is being washed. It happens to be the feet because they needed to have their feet cleaned and the servants would do that. But the point of the foot washing is the Lord and the teacher is washing the ones who are under him. And that points to Jesus' death on the cross, which doesn't wash most of us, but it washes all of us. So what I see happening here in this verse 8, 9, and 10 is Jesus says in verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me, because my washing you is pointing to the point of it all. That is, the preposterous gospel that God serves sinners and cleanses them by the death of the cross. Peter, in verse 9, doesn't understand. He doesn't know what's going on, but he says, If you need to wash me, then wash me all. And I think what happens in verse 10 is Jesus loving Peter, smiling, laughing at Peter, what he just said, basically is just telling Peter, I don't need to wash you all. I just need to wash your feet. I think he's just speaking to him in a plain, non-metaphorical way at the beginning of verse 10. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, Peter. It's okay. I don't need to wash every bit of you. I appreciate your enthusiasm. The point here is that I'm serving you. The point here is not what part of the body I'm washing. The point here is that I am your superior and I am serving you and you need to submit to that. And then I think at the end of verse 10, Jesus then, after saying, you're all clean, you only need my, me to wash your feet, I think then he moves into the spiritual and he says, spiritually speaking, you're all clean, but not all. So that's how I interpret verse 10, brothers and sisters. And you can just think about that, that the first part is not at all spiritual, but the last statement is spiritual. And Jesus is saying at last, because you've loved me, because you've clung to me, because you believe that I came from God, you are clean, spiritually. Even though I have yet to die, your participation and profit in my death is sealed like the saints of the Old Testament of old, and your names are in the Lamb's book of life except for Judas because he does not believe. Those who, are, those who believe are all clean. And I'd like to remind you of that today as Christians. You can take this word of Jesus and you can apply it to yourself. Because you have believed in him and accepted him, you are clean. Not semi-clean, not mostly clean, not primarily clean, but you got to keep cleaning yourself day by day. You are all clean, and what you need to do day by day is remember that and hear this word. He who has believed in me is clean. And you can enjoy that every day. So in closing, what is our right response again to what Jesus has done? Be amazed. Accept the preposterous service of God. Trust in his superior, superior wisdom and sing hallelujah forever. That's all we can do. Don't do what Peter did. 
Don't lean on your own understanding. Let's say, wow, thank you, praise you. Please stand with me and we'll pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son. We marvel even at the fact that he washed sinful human beings' feet. We marvel even more at the, at the fact, Lord, that he died for our sins. And I just ask, Lord, that you would fill us with wonder afresh this morning. I pray that each one of us would see in a fresh way how totally sinful and undeserving we are but that how, how loved we are by you. Help us to see as we sing this last song and as we just meditate upon what you've done, that you died for us, that you died for me. Help us to make it personal, Lord. And Father, just to accept and be thankful and we praise you, Lord, for how amazing you are. Thank you for revealing yourself to us and revealing your heart through Jesus. Bless us, Lord, as we, as we go from here this morning. Help us to wear the servant's apron as we keep our eyes on the fact that you are the God who serves. In Jesus' name, amen.